Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest is Jack Gilbert. He's a professor at UC San Diego School of Medicine. He's the director of the Microbiome and Metagenomics Center. So we're going to talk about uh, intermittent fasting and how it affects our microbiome. But welcome, Jack. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. If you would tell me a bit about your background first, and then uh, we'll talk about the current research you're doing. Microbial ecologists and microbiome scientists, what I do is I study how microbes interact with each other and how they interact with the world around them. It just so happens that uh, there are a lot of microbes in people and in the world around people, and they shape our immune system and uh, how we process our food and even our mental and, uh, and psychological capacities. So they're a vital component of our health and wellness. And I got into it by studying microbes and then trying to find new and innovative ways of exploring them. Okay. Well, very good. I've interviewed a lot of microbiologists and spoken about the microbiome a lot. But one thing that occurred to me is what happens when someone's doing intermittent fasting? You know, let's say 18 hours or maybe even two, three days. What's happening to all the bacteria that normally would depend on the food we eat? What happens? We honestly don't know. It's a really understudied area. There have been several investigations, all of them quite preliminary, suggest there's uh, either an increase in the number of bacteria or a decrease in the number of bacteria, an increase in their productivity or a decrease in their productivity. You know, there's, there's a lack of control in the clinical studies that have been performed in this space. What we do tend to understand, though, is obviously microbes exist in their own circadian rhythm, their own day-night cycle, their own understanding of, you know, the of day, and that they metabolically affects what they do inside the body. And so, you know, work that we've done back in the past, about five, ten years, has demonstrated that there are microbial oscillations that occur through time, especially in a 24-hour cycle or a 48-hour cycle, that seem to affect how the body responds to the world around it, right? So depending upon how you feed, say, a mouse or a rat or a human, you can influence the type of microbial activity that are occurring at different points in the day. We found in one study that eating a high saturated fat, high sugar diet tended to significantly increase the abundance of bacteria that produce things like hydrogen sulfide, you know, the rotten egg smell. And that hydrogen sulfide tended to get it the bloodstream and affect circadian clock genes in your liver. And those, those genes tell your liver what time it is, right? So the eating the wrong kind of food at the wrong time of day tended to produce a microbiome that disrupted how your body sensed time. There is a potential link there. Well, what about looking at a whole host of biomarkers, you know, before, during, and uh, after a fast? You know, has that experiment been done? Maybe that would indicate, let's say there's a, a reduction in B vitamins or uh, serotonin, you know, things that are normally produced in the gut. Maybe that would correlate with uh, those particular type bacteria either changing, you know, function or dying and other bacteria proliferating and taking over. 
you know, the same thing with um, has fecal and oral microbiome been looked at and sampled before, during, and after a fast? It has, again, in limited studies, and we do see differences, as I pointed out earlier, though. So those differences are conflicting, probably because those studies are poorly controlled or lack some fundamental component that allows us to really interrogate what's going on. But it, it makes sense, right? You know, it, what you're saying, the questions you're asked are legitimate. It's just that we don't have the data to support them. It makes that if you turned off the tap of nutrients that support the microbial community in your gut, they're going to have to subsist on other things, right? There are certain types of bacteria, for example, that eat the mucus that lines your intestine. There are certain types of bacteria that, that survive very, very well and in nearly entirely upon the bile acids that are released from your from your body into the gut cavity. And they can those as a fuel source. And so, you know, things like, as you point out, it would make a lot of sense to do a clinical study, determine the factors that change before and afterwards, reference to a control population, do a crossover study to determine if those were over time in the same individuals and see if there were features that could be directly linked to changes in the microbiome. Unfortunately, those studies just have not been done with the rigor that would allow us to make any definitive conclusion. Well, what do you mean they're contradictory? What, what kind of information has come out of them? What's contradictory about them? Some of the studies have shown an increase in the diversity of bacteria associated with uh, fasting in certain populations. Others shown a decrease. You know, one study in a population of people during Ramadan fasting demonstrated that there was a significant reduction in alpha diversity during the Ramadan period and a significant reduction in the fecal content of short-chain fatty acids. So the concentration of short-chain fatty acids, which are generally generated by bacteria when they ferment fiber, be reduced in the gut or in the fecal matter uh, during the Ramadan period. And that post-Ramadan, when people went back to their their more daily consumption of food during breakfast, lunch, and dinner, for example, alpha diversity, the number of bacterial species in their food went up and the amount of short-chain fatty acids went up, right? So, you know, seeing that this, you know, fasting during the day and eating only after sunset was not necessarily producing what we would normally associate with a healthy microbiome, right? It looked more like a unhealthy microbiome. Why not look at the metagenomic expression, you know, before, during, and after a fast? Maybe the secret's in there. I mean, there seems to be a lot of redundancy and cross-ability, I guess, of various bacteria to perform a certain function. So, I mean, in the absence of food, I guess a lot of questions. So, th- so that would be one. Is there a change in metagenomics? Is there a, you know, like, has anyone, I know it sounds terrible, but, you know, put bacteria under conditions where there's no food for them and to see how long it takes them to die or if they go into like a spore, low metabolic state, or, you know, do other bacteria tend to change function and thereby take over and dominate and take over the production of short-chain fatty acids or whatever it may be, you know, in the absence of food? I mean, I guess there's like tons of questions there, you know? I know. Those are all legitimate and very good questions. It's just the studies haven't been done. I mean, this, this, is, this is the problem, right? You know, you can do a small-scale investigation with a small number of people and come up with some clu- conclusions, but until you do a rigorous investigation with detailed assessment of the functional potential from metagenomics or the transcriptional activity or the metabolic products in the bloodstream or fecal matter or even the urine of those individuals and you control the study effectively, you're not going to be able to really identify it. This is why we really do rely on evidence associated with other studies, right? So our study where we look at the the scale effect in a population of, of animals, right? As we can see that the microbial community does change over time. They do change their metabolic potential. They do change the types of metabolites they generate when you feed them different things. You know, I took away from that study 
in the University of Chicago that we published in 2016. I took away from that study that, that you know you really shouldn't eat a lot of sugar at breakfast, <laughs> you know, which, which is the would have told you anyway, right? You know, you should try and consume instead a you know a high fiber, high polyphenol, you know, fruit and you know healthy diet in the morning. Maybe some yogurt, some granola, and some berries. You know, like. But either way, the, the problem is. The studies haven't yet been done that would allow us to really interrogate that question. What we do know is that intermittent fasting is it, it does have metabolic benefits. People tend to have a reduction in oxidative stress. They tend to have a an improvement in their metabolic blood panels. So they, you know, their cholesterol tends to go down. They tend to look healthier in terms of uh, in terms of their blood chemistry. They tend to have lower inflammation. All of those aspects could be associated with changes in the bacterial community. Again, the studies haven't been done to link those two factors, but it would make sense that the microbiome would change. Now, the question you should be asking is, does the microbiome changes associated with short-chain, with um, intermittent fasting, do those changes lead to changes in the body or are they just resultant from the body responding to a lack of nutrition at different times of the day? And they're really interesting questions, right? But it a lot of it comes down to synchronicity. Your body is in a dialogue cycle. It's in it's in a in synchrony over time, right? And dealing with in the absence of food, like you know, okay, so if you have low blood sugar, there's gluconeogenesis that goes on in the liver and other tissues. Um, what about looking at how the body processes change during a fast? Forget about the bacteria for right now, but that may give you a clue. Okay, the production of ketones ramps up, let's say, you know, 18 hours plus into a fast. I'm just making this up. And we know metagenomically that these types of bacteria would probably be able to feed off of them better than these other types. So maybe then we would expect a, a predominance of them. They would, you know, the mixture would change again during a fast because now the inputs are different. There's, there's not zero inputs, there's still something, but they just changed. And as I said, you know, we do know that intermittent fasting impacts the immunology. You know, people have less inflammation. They have they have a better metabolic panel in their bloodstream. They, you know, tend to have less oxidative stress. So we, it, it, people have done detailed assessments of the human being during intermittent fasting, but linking those to the microbial activity just has not been done. But as I said, a lot of those facts are associated directly with changes in the microbiome or the microbiome has been associated microbial metabolic activity has been associated with changes in those features in a person so it stands to reason there is some kind of association i mean again you cannot just start right. the microbial community and not expect something to happen it's supposition as to as to the mechanism that underpins those associations before we continue I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, of the studies that you've looked at, does the microbiome come back to the previous state, you know, the unfasted state once the fast ends? Yeah, but it's been very limited in terms of the number of people that have been investigated. And I wouldn't say they are all robust time series studies where you know we're looking at something 
a population before a fast, during a fast, and after a fast with enough samples to really account for the temporal variability, you know, because the people's microbiome changes day to day to a certain extent. And understanding that temporal variability between people is um, has proved to be to generate really complex understanding. So while while again in I referenced that Ramadan study that, that I read a few weeks ago, but the, you know it's a limited study, but it really all it all it did demonstrate was that the microbiome increased in diversity when people started consuming more food would suggest that there is an association between the consumption of a normal uh, frequency diet and increase in alpha diversity and an increase in short-chain fatty acid production. But that doesn't necessarily support the conclusions that we see from other studies which show metabolic benefit for the human being from intermittent fasting. So disconnect in what we understand metabolic fa- intermittent fasting to do to people, what the limited number of studies that have looked at the microbiome in intermittent fasting have actually shown. Why do you think there haven't been uh, robust studies? Is, this, is it difficult to get an IRB? To study this stuff? Is it considered like cruel for people to fast or uh, are there other reasons you think maybe that there's just not enough perceived benefit from doing the work or what's the reason? I don't think it's necessarily considered cruel. Obviously, there have been clinical trials that have been performed to assess the actual impact of intermittent fasting. I just don't think, I think, you know, that I regular people have applied microbiome investigations to some of those trials, but not enough of them to, not in a rigorous enough way to really be able to interpret the data effectively. So I, I don't know, you know, like, like all of these things, there's only a certain number of people going around that have the ability to generate the data in a way that, that can actually help to inform clinical outcomes in the end of the day you know we all need more money to do more science and clear a certain number of things we can do intermittent fasting in as in and of itself sounds like a great idea and that looks like there's some perceived benefits you know there's there's a lot of work on going on in nutrition and try to understand how to provide adequate and effective nutrition for the individual. You know, I, I'm chairman of or co-chair of, of the uh, Nutrition for Precision Health program for the National Institutes of Health, which is a $175 million program recruiting 10,000 people from around America to investigate or identify if we can determine why people respond physiologically differently to different diets and whether the microbiome might be mediating that. That's a huge investment in trying to just understand how eat affects us. Now, putting that back down to how the food we don't eat affects us might take some time, right? You know, there needs to be a critical mass of understanding behind those kind of research topics to generate the kind of intellectual investigations that are required to get scientists to behind the idea of investigating it. In the microbiome, are there uh, predominant species that... Uh or in larger numbers that, that vastly exceed others? You know, is there a kind of a head of the pack? Are there, you know, even though there's uh, however many species and it's diverse, you know, there's certain ones that, uh, again, predominate or dominate? Yes. I mean, there are organisms which tend to predominate at different times of the day under with different types of food in different people, different periods in their lives. And it's a big question, right? You know, they're obviously dominant species is in taxa of, of bacteria, for example, that live inside the body and are evolved, adapted to live inside the body. I mean, one of the most abundant genera of bacteria, bacteria is uh, the bacteroides, and they're incredibly diverse inside the gut, and there are lots of different species, and they have a lot of different niches inside the system of the gut, right? But again, you know, if we were to bring it back to intermittent fasting, um, the, the changes that we see across the different studies are quite different. 
suggesting that in the limited number of studies, there isn't a set, you know, type of bacteria that tend to respond to a lack of, of nutrition going in. The reason I'm asking is like, uh, even if one particular species or strain, well, I guess not, you know, there's tons of strains within a species too. You know, what if, uh, I don't know, for Mickey T's represents uh, 15% of the total microbial load in a group of people. And then they do this experiment. They just look at what happens to the Firmicutes. Maybe because there's so many of them, changes just in that, you know, that type of bacteria might give a signal instead of trying to look at everything. We're just looking at generic things like quote-unquote diversity, you know? Yeah. I mean, there are going to be metabolic redundancy microbiome that may allow for a certain level of interdependency and resiliency. This manifests from that interdependency. So you can see there'll be ecological stability. I mean, there's some insistence from certain people that intermittent fasting might lead to a resetting of the microbiome. I've seen that talked about. What does a resetting mean ecologically? Well, it means kind of, you know, uh, trying to stabilize the microbial community to um, a new configuration, right? And that could involve certain microorganisms or a certain diversity of microorganisms that might not be the ones that you had before, right? So you might promote the growth, different strains or different species within a genus or different genera within a family that do kind of similar things, but fill those niches in different ways. And that might be better for you. But again, it's a lot of supposition. How much will a bacteria's metabolism change in the presence of other bacteria versus not for the vast, vast majority of organisms, because every, every microbe is pumping out products, right? And those products, either substantial or, or secondary food sources for other microbes. It's a, a cross-feeding orgy in the gut. Yeah, as I see why it's so difficult to tell. There's just so many, you know, cross-dependencies and everything. It's very difficult to sort this out. I mean, if you took it down to a single organism and you said, you know, like, like you intimated before, you said, you know, if I took a bug and I starved it, what would happen to it? Well, yeah, they do die, right? You know, cells cannot survive without nutrition. However, you know, they, they undergo certain periods. So, for example, during surgery, you have to starve yourself prior to surgery, right? And then let's say I'm going to give you gastrointestinal surgery. We're going to do a gastrointestinal resection. I'm going to chop part of your intestine that's got, say, a cancerous polyp on it, right? Then they're going to stick your gut back together, create what we refer to as an anastomosis. Now, in that situation, I may, I've got to put your body during a fast, right? So you won't be eating for approximately 12 hours prior to the surgical practice because we don't want food in there. We don't want you to regurgitate the food and, and choke during surgical activity. And then also wash your gut out. If you've ever had a, a colonoscopy, you'll know what that's like, right? You know, I pump your mouth full of PEG, polyethylene glycol liquid, and you poop out liquid for a period of time until you're nice and clean. Then I pump you full of acid, both oral and, and IV. And then I cut your gut open and I, you know, chop a piece out. It's a lot of stress, not just for the human body, but for the microbes living in the gut. And one thing we have found in that situation is that people who tended to high saturated fat, high sugar diet, to surgery during all of these insults the starvation the antibiotics the the cutting open of their ecosystem and the exposure to oxygen the bugs that tend to thrive and survive under that environment tend to be what we refer to as proteobacteria so enterobacter species and they tend to produce enzymes like proteases or collagenases and the collagenases especially are a concern because generally in the patients that we get who get infections after surgery, we see that the bacteria causing those infections tend to be ones that can excrete collagenases that break down collagen. Collagen is the protein that builds our body up and makes our cells 
connect to each other, right? So if your bacteria is producing a lot of that, it can break down your tissue. And so we see we see this phenomenon, and we have hypothesized that in that situation, the this bacteria that produces this collagenase changes its lifestyle when the body starts to suck phosphorus out of the gut cavity in response to all the stress. And that actually causes sudden starvation of that bacteria, and it changes its phenotype to create a biofilm, a living goo, on the inside of the gut and that biofilm then starts to uh, release collagenase to break to create nutrient sources out of the tissue lining your intestine so in that situation we do see examples where bacteria respond to starvation hypothetically in a way that is harmful to our body now that doesn't mean that the you know, intermittent fasting is going to cause a lot of bacteria to suddenly emerge but it, it does stipulate that under certain circumstances there could be consequences microbial consequences to these dietary choices or oh, delusi has anyone used those pills that have a camera in them you know that you swallow to look at the condition of your you know of the lining of your intestines and your colon uh during a fast or before during or after maybe that would reveal some clues i don't know yeah maybe i, I have no idea I didn't even know they had little cameras in them. I knew they had some that were taking gut contents and looking at the chemistry, but I wasn't aware of little cameras in pills. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a very new thing. Okay, interesting. I guess, yeah, like you said, the experimentation is uh, just still needs to be done to know more. Is there any, you think there might be a benefit in looking at phage activity? Maybe that's a better indicator of the state of the, you know, of what's going on in the gut or another window into it instead of just looking at, uh, you know, the bacteria themselves or their, you know, the transcriptome or the metagenomics, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, looking at phage activity would be incredibly valuable. I mean, metatranscriptomics would probably tell you something. Again, as I said, metabolomics as well could make predictive changes, you know, and, and you can look at the bloodstream. It's part, you know, it's, you could throw the kitchen sink at a study, identify changes, and I guarantee you'll see them. Understanding whether any of them are causative or have any relationship to the outcomes that we see in people during an intermittent fast, again, as I say, it needs to be studied with a very rigorous clinical study, clinical investigation. What would be a dream study, you think? Or what would be a very rigorous study? Like, what would that look like? Oh, uh, well, said before, like, um, you know, we could do a crossover design where we take people over between you know, a standard period of their life, do a full biochemical workup, uh, blood chemistry, gut microbiome, etc., then put them through an intermittent fast, rerun the, that chemical profiling, microbiome profiling, and then take them off the intermittent fast uh, for a period of time, rerun the profiling, chemical profiling, microbiome profiling, and then go back intermittent fast until you do a crossover design where you see how people respond as an individual to that and you do that with enough people and you can build up a statistical power that will allow you to identify any particular traits or biomarkers in the microbiome that might be reflective of the very act of intermittent fasting that might be common across people and also uh, idiosyncratic if you will. What about longer fasts, you know, a week, even a month? Is anyone at all looking in that arena to see what's happening with the microbiome of the people? Can you fast for a month? Is that feasible? Yeah. With oh, okay. Sounds horrible. Uh, no. It sounds really difficult, but yeah, people, a week or 10 days. I mean, uh, there's plenty of people I've spoken to that have done that. Yeah, they may do it once a quarter or once a year, but that's uh, in the bacteria world, that's like eons, I would think. So you might get like a very significant change that maybe wouldn't undo itself after that i have no idea yeah i mean possibly it would be able to change back after the food came back i mean most bacteria don't necessarily die they just subsist they go into quiescent states or they can form spores and wait mm. get better so it's very very hard to completely change your microbiome all you can really do is change the proportions of the species 
So, you know, if you went on a starvation diet for 10 days, God forbid, it's feasible that you would see significant changes. But when you went back on your diet after that, I would assume that the microbial community would reestablish itself to a very similar level that it was before, assuming you were eating the same types of food before and afterwards. Again, supposition. Okay. Yeah, no, very interesting. I don't know if, I mean, this is probably not at all linked, but has there been much study on what happens when someone takes antibiotics, you know, to the microbiome? Um, on the microbiome? Yeah, before, during, and after, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Quite right. a few studies. Not, not as, again, lots of studies, and we do know quite a bit, but it depends upon the type of antibiotic people, what they've been treated for, or if they've been treated, and depends upon which part of the gut they're looking in. Different people tend to respond differently. There's some really interesting findings. You know, invariably, there's there's one study which I think is going to be published soon, but where they were able to demonstrate that even after a hundred days high-powered antibiotics associated with the treatment for things like Lyme's disease, people's microbiome after the antibiotics were stopped tended to re-establish in a similar way to what was observed before the antibiotics. So it doesn't wipe everything out completely. That's probably impossible, but it just knocked it back for a prolonged period of time and then everything tended to go back to normal. But, you know, in another study, Israel where they took colonoscopies and endoscopies of the gut or in different compartments all the way through, and a small number of people, because that's a very invasive study, they gave the people antibiotics in a certain population, they gave them probiotics after the antibiotics, just a natural lactobacillus cocktail. Those lactobacillus in certain people tended to establish a, a strong community in the duodenum, which is the part of the intestine just after the stomach, but nowhere else. And you couldn't see those lactobacillus in the stool. You could only see them in the endoscopy of, of the duodenum. So there's a really interesting problem there. You know, people suggest you should take antibiotic probiotics after you take antibiotics, but that's really suggested that in certain people, those probiotics could establish in a part of the body they're not supposed to be in, right? Most of the probiotics you buy in the store aren't supposed to live in a human, um, so they really shouldn't have been establishing in that environment, which is interesting. I mean, they're not supposed to be living in a human. I thought that's... Uh, so they're trying to give you novel bacteria and a lot of probiotics instead of ones that uh, are correlated supposedly with good health? 95% of all the probiotics you can buy in the store are food-grade organisms that are associated with fermented foods. So they're, they're bacteria you find in yogurts and, you know, in uh, kimchi and in, you know, whatever. So, I mean, you know, they're, they're generally recognized as safe organisms that we've isolated from food. And instead of consuming the fermented food, we now consume them in pills. Oh, okay. All right. I thought they were just like wacky ones that were picked out that really had nothing to do with what uh, would normally be seen in a person. Yeah, you wouldn't normally see these in people, though. They're not, they're not designed to live in people. They're, we find them in food, but... The food, though, I mean, unless, you know, when we eat the food, like you eat kimchi, how much of the uh, bacteria stays in you or does most, does it all get killed and destroyed, you know? It's killed and destroyed and pooped out. You don't think any of it survives? No, they're not, they don't, they don't, most of them are aerobic. They can't survive in an anaerobic environment like you're in So they die and they get pooped out. And you see that because when you stop taking the food, you don't see those bacteria present in the poop after you stop taking the food. Why would fermented foods be considered to be so beneficial then? I think because they stimulate the immune system. You're consuming foreign organisms and your body, like NSA, keeps a record of all the organisms it's seen and it knows these organisms aren't bad, aren't damaging. It knows they, they won't survive in our body and so it, it calms down when it sees them. It doesn't have an overreaction to them. And so I think there's a immune benefit 
consuming foreign organisms, either in fermented food or in pills. Really? That's crazy. I thought that the actual bacteria itself would help you. That's what a lot of people assume. That's what a lot of companies will tell you. But we have virtually no evidence of that at all. Only in some of the next generation probiotics, which are currently on the market, do we see the bacteria actually performing metabolic activity in the intestine in a robust way that we can actually associate with an outcome, clinical outcome or a health outcome. I don't know any any credible solid evidence to support the fact that the bacteria that we would buy in the store actively colonizing your intestine and performing metabolic activity or reactions that are in a living state that support your health. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they're not health beneficial. As I said, they could be stimulating your immune system, even if they're dead. And we found that probiotics, when consumed by animals, even in their dead, can have very beneficial health effects. So, I mean, they don't have to be alive, but they're definitely not colonizing your intestine. Well, the ones that are dead, like, you know, the study, I guess, in animals, like what, what was the mechanism of action by which they helped? How did they help? We don't know. Uh, we hypothesize it, it's immune activity, as I say, proving that has proven to be very difficult. That's so crazy. And that's, that's, yeah, that's weird. But you ruined one of my, uh, I guess, one of my hopes. Oh, I'm sorry. That was your hope. You could be colonized by foreign bacteria from. No, but good. You know, quote unquote, <laughs> ones that would be useful. You know, you eat a ton of fermented foods. You, uh, supposedly it's correlated with living longer and better. Well, yeah, that doesn't mean that it's not. Yeah, yeah. The, the bugs have to colonize your intestine in order for you to live longer and better. You know, this is the uh, that's the dichotomy, isn't it? You know, just because the mechanism of action that you assumed isn't real doesn't mean that it. Can someone inoculate their gut, let's say, against C. difficile? Could you take it in food or orally? You know, in certain amounts, small amounts, and therefore your uh, your body would get maybe used to it so that if, uh, you know, you get messed up later and you would get normally C. difficile taking over that, that it doesn't? No, I would strongly recommend you do not try that experiment I know, I know. because you might end up with C. difficile infection and that would be very, very bad. Right. Uh, we are very, very diverse peoples, right? And it's possible that in certain situations that, that um, certain people have become semi-immune to certain diseases, right? You know, like even when the plague passes through a population, you have people who are immune. I'm sure people are immune to, are naturally immune to SARS-CoV-2 for reasons that we don't fundamentally understand. And hey, boy, there's so much mystery. Crazy. Yes, there is. Keeps me, it keeps me employed. What is your current research about? I have 43 ongoing research programs across multiple different disciplines. But how about one that's, uh, that's super interesting to you that would be fun to discuss for maybe five minutes? Very interested in vaginal atrophy in uh, trans men uh, consuming trend, uh, gender-affirming drugs such as testosterone. So one of my graduate students, um, Marisol Dothard, came to me with this idea that, that you know that when women go through menopause, they and they the uh, estrogen level drops, it tends to cause vaginal atrophy, which can cause dryness, which can cause irritation, even bleeding during sexual intercourse. And we are very interested in trying to understand if the microbial either in the vagina or in the gut was associated with estrogen-based activity that might be either reducing the impact of that phenotype or maybe exacerbating it in certain ways. And so one of the, this led us on to try and investigate this in, in trans men who were undergoing testosterone and gender-affirming therapies. And it's fascinating work because it seems like bacteria in the vaginal cavity potentially release 
proteases when you consume testosterone that will actually actively degrade the membrane, the mucus and covered membrane that lines the vaginal wall. So it can actually lead directly to atrophy. So the very act of taking testosterone can promote the growth of bacteria, which um, are detrimental to the vaginal health of trans men. Interesting. Okay. Well, very good, Jack. What's the best place for people to learn more about uh, your work? Where can they go? You can go to my website, uh, gilbertlab at ucsd.edu. And uh, that's a generally has a lot of the different types of research that we're doing and a link to all the work that we have. It's a good place. Okay. Yeah. Well, very good. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I know it's, you know, it's a lot more questions and answers, but yeah, it's just the more, uh, I guess we look at the complexity of our microbial constituents, the, the crazier and more complicated it is. So it's, I guess it's going to take a while to, to tease all this info out if we can. Yeah. That's science for you. There's always more questions than answers. Well, very good. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Please, Richard. Take care. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.